When we talk to students and to young scholars about professional development, we often frame the conversation around specific things that one can do, strategic advice about you know, where to publish what, how to you know, go for funding, etc. Yet today's speaker, among the many interesting things he said, was you know, equally important is the power of resilience, of knowing that rejection is part of the process that you have to take negative you know, evaluations to heart, but you have to improve and keep at it, that eventually that's how you'll see success. About this and many other interesting things is this episode of El Café Latinx with Arthur Soto Vasquez of Texas A&M International University. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this great episode of El Café Latinx. We have a fabulous speaker today on Election Day 2020 in the US. We are joined by Arthur Soto Vasquez, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Psychology at Texas A&M International University. Um, he got his PhD uh, in the School of Communication at American University, his master's at UT Austin, his BA at St. Edwards University, where he graduated magna cum laude. Um, he uh, started in the professoriate not very long ago, but he already has his first monograph out. Um, and it is a book very timely for you know, the year, and in particular the day, called Mobilizing the US Latinx Vote media identity and politics that came up with Rutledge a few months ago. Um, it's a true remarkable record, you know, to finish, uh, you know, less than a year ago, to get, you know, into the tenure track and to have your first book out, Arthur. He's done uh, presentations, you know, many presentations, conferences uh, in the US, but also in Europe, uh, in Latin America. He's had papers out. He has a book in progress. He's a rising star in the field. So Arthur, first of all, thank you for joining us today. It's truly a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And uh, I need to say before anything that uh, if I sound anxious, it is only because of the election and no other reason. That, that's the only reason why I might be a little on edge during this conversation. <laughs> not so after that great introduction. I will copy that uh, for our esteemed audience. So, so with that, Arthur, how did it all begin for you? I mean, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an assistant professor, you know, to be a member of the professoriate? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking about this um, the other day 
And, and, you know, as much as I think we like to tell ourselves looking backwards that it, there was this great plan, right? Um, you know, yeah, I was going to always do this thing. Um, a lot of it, I think, is, is a little bit of luck and, and being, you know, right place, right time. And uh, I remember, you know, I was thinking back when I applied for this position in particular, um, I was, you know, sitting at my house, I had moved back uh, in my third year of my PhD, um, at my house in El Paso with my parents, actually. Um, and, you know, I happened to you know, click on the NCA uh, position announcement email and happened that this position happened to catch my eye and I, on a whim kind of decided to apply. Um, you know, I remember asking my advisor, hey, am I ready? I was still writing my dissertation. And, and the advice was, you know what, just go for it. If, if you don't get it, at least you maybe get some feedback or you at least work on the products um, needed to get the position. Uh, and by the slim chance, if you, you know, were to do, were to get it, you know, it's great. And, and um, I, th- I guess it's kind of a philosophy I've, I've tried for a, a lot of my professional career, you know, it's, it's sort of just not being uh, a little too apprehensive about just putting something out there and seeing what happens. Um, I, you know, that was certainly something I struggled with my early graduate career about feeling very self-conscious if I were to get a rejection. Um, and, and now what I tell my students, you know, is, hey, you're going to get at least three rejections for every acceptance you get. So might as well, you know, get as many as you can. Uh, I, I see you're, you're cringing there. So <laughs> I don't know if you yeah, this I am. <laughs> you um, have to us all the time. Arthur. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and the thing is, I mean, you know, um, we're in the midst of a, an election right now and um, obviously the pandemic. And there's a lot of, tra- I think, you know, uh, trends that are happening in our, in our field and in academia in general that um, in some ways maybe might reinforce this kind of theory or, or philosophy of just put as much of, of, of your stuff out there as you can and see what happens. There's certainly a lot of more, uh, you know, venues for publishing. Of course, this does lead to, you know, some of the issues we see with like, right, um, you know, predatory p- publishing uh, or lower quality stuff and, and a increased workload for tenure folks like yourself who have to then review all this extra work that's being put out there. Um, and I think that might, you know, long-term make us rethink about how we exactly evaluate what is considered productive in academia. Um, you know, I mean, the message I got when I started was, you know, publish, 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 and worry about the other stuff later. Um, and of course, there's a lot of issues with that, but, um, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the, the game in town right now. Um, but I think we're going to have to continue to rethink that as we move forward. Okay. So there are several issues I, I want to follow up on, but... But before I do that, I want to go back to the very beginning. So when was the first time that you thought, mm, maybe I should go into academia? Yeah, Did you yeah. I realized I didn't answer your question. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I mean, yeah. was it in high school or in college, after college? Um, you know what? I, okay, let me say this. Uh, this is an example of how much words can actually mean something. Uh, I, when I was in my master's program, this is really the first time I started thinking about going into academia, you know, as a career. Uh, my advisor said, hey, are you going to apply to our PhD program here? And I kind of hadn't thought about it. You know, I was not sure what I wanted to do. I kind of had an idea maybe I'd either go into like politics or meet your sort of industry or maybe even law school, who knows. And even that sort of slight encouragement, even if it probably was very offhand from, from on his part, um, you know, made me, made me think about it and say, okay, let me, you know what, let me give it a shot. Um, and, and then I guess once I got into my PhD program, I said, okay, this is going to be my goal 
I'll shoot for this. And of course, being conscious of, you know, leaving plan B, um, you know, options on the table, of course, but, um, but yeah, I think it really was that kind of slight word of encouragement. You know, my undergraduate degree was in political science, a, a different field than I, than I'm in now, although I do a lot of political communication. Um, but my plan in undergrad was to be a lawyer, <laughs> you know, and, and I thought until I, I started going to LSAT training courses and I realized I didn't want to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, growing up, my, my, my abuela always used to call me el abogado because I, I like to talk. I just, you know, chat and, and I can go on for a while. And so I guess that, you know, the, you know, what people expect of you does matter, right. In that sense. Um, but, um, you know, it was somewhat uh, partly intervention, I guess, on behalf of my my advisor who said, hey, have you thought about a PhD? Have you thought about going into academia? Uh, of course, the support of of, um, of those around me, both within academia and my family and stuff like that, who encouraged me to go for it. Um, so, I, you know, it's not totally a conscious decision I started off with, but something that I think for it's the case for a lot of us that we kind of uh, happenstance into and we make the best of it, right? All right. So, and then you switched from political science to communication. As you said, you, you work in part in the area of political communication. It's one of yeah. the fields uh, your work uh, speaks to. How was that, that transition? Yeah, yeah. So, I, okay, let me, um, let me give you a little bit of, of insight here. I was, I, like I said, I wanted to go either into politics or legal, in the legal field in undergrad. So as naturally, right, I was like, oh, what should I major in? Uh, let's do political science. And I remember taking, you know, some of the courses and, and I had a great experience at St. Edwards um, University for undergraduate in terms of learning how to write well. I mean, I think that was the biggest thing I got out of it. Um, but I remember sitting in some of my political science classes, especially classes on like U.S. Congress or the president. And what we were learning was, you know, who sits on the appropriations committee or which president, you know, what, what year uh, was James Buchanan born in? And it was like kind of like these facts. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe not totally consciously, but thinking like, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to, to, to learn like these kind of facts. I, I wanted to learn about how power works in society, essentially, like how are things done and why do people believe certain things, ideology. Right. And so, you know, my last semester, I had a chance to finally take some open some some classes, and uh, there were two that caught my eye: uh, history of Latin America, uh, which is great history class, had a lot of fun, and then gender communication. Um, never taken a comm class before. Uh, my you know a professor at, at St. Edward's name, Dr. Mitchell, um, and I remember sitting in the class and being like, "Okay, this is what I was looking for. I'm looking for how people come to believe." certain things. And then I took that with my interest in politics and sort of ran with it um, and decided to kind of work at, at the juncture between those two. But I've always had been interested in sort of media and, you know, franchises. And I was a big, you know, Star Wars kid growing up. Um, uh, Disney, for example, I've always been fascinated with. I have a very complicated relationship with that, uh, you know, company and its products. Um, and so my recent turn, you kind of previewed this a bit at the beginning, has been expanding my viewpoint beyond sort of the political, right, which is uh, the book you mentioned that, that just came out, um, but also looking more broadly at, at sort of media, communication, uh, culture, all from this kind of starting point of identity making. Um, and so I've kind of moved a little beyond sort of my, my political training, but I might come back to it at some point. I'm kind of, I don't know, maybe like a lot of the listeners, I'm just tired of thinking about politics all the time. 
Um, even though, of course, everything we do is political, but specifically electoral politics. I'm a little, I'm a little over it. I'm ready for this election to be done. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, your dissertation research, which is, you know, um, then came out in a revised form uh, as a book, um, did go deep into politics um, and identity and ideology and digital, hmm. right? Um, those intersections. How did you choose your dissertation topic? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I remember, you know, thinking in my graduate program, okay, I want to study why, the question I always was, was, was trying to figure out even since 2008. So I, I started college in 2009, so just to give the listeners a, a kind of a, a rough timeline here. So as you can imagine, 2008, uh, Barack Obama's election, right, on this kind of multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition, and you know, <laughs> there were there was writing back then about how the Republicans will never win an election mm -hmm. again because of Black and Latino voters, right? This is the Democratic wave, the demographic change, right? And I remember kind of really believing in that, that sort of that hype. Um, and so um, during my graduate work at UT, I was really interested in this idea of okay, well, why do um, why do some Latino voters, Latinx voters, choose to vote or choose not to? And, you know, a lot of my original work around then was, was basically that question. It was kind of a little more of a political science question than communication, really, to be honest. Um, so I get to um, my graduate, my PhD program, right? Uh, American University, living in DC, right? The heart of it all, the beast, the heart of the beast, if you will. And um, I go to uh, the election night party, election watch party in uh, downtown DC, hosted by Voto Latino who had kind of come on my radar as, as an organization that did this kind of work about voter mobilization. Uh, of course, we all know what happens, right? And uh, I remember that was right when I was working on my proposal and my advisor basically read it, you know, what I had it up to that point. And, and she essentially told me, it's like, this is interesting, but it's not really a communication project, which is often some of the feedback we often give to my, uh, I'm sure you give to your students, I give to my students. I'm like, okay, well, where's the, Where's the calm element here? Tell me what aspect. And, and she had done some work on, um, some of her work was on organizations, specifically around children and media and how they mobilize their, their audience. Uh, people, you know, committed to sort of uh, privacy protections for children and advertising, stuff like that. And that's kind of when it clicked for me. I was like, okay, let me, instead of studying the why and taking that assumption for granted that these are Latinx voters waiting to be mobilized, let me look at the actual process of, of mobilizing them and not take for granted that these are people out there who are, are being spoken to, but rather right, trace the production of um, sort of the media towards this group, who's making it, why they're making it, what are sort of the actors, who are the actors, sorry, um, and, and, and less so sort of, you know, kind of unpack some of those uh, assumptions, make, make uh, as, as I teach in my uh, comp classes, right? make the natural seem a little weird, right? Uh, unpack the the, norm, the normality of it. And um, and so that's how it kind of developed. I mean, I have to credit, you know, those who were advising me. I, I certainly didn't fall from the sky. Certainly events at the time um, also pushed me in that, in that direction too, because a lot of people were like, how could this happen? Everybody thought in 2016 that there was going to be this huge wave of, of Latino Latinx voters um, you know, uh, voting against Trump and, and, and Arizona was going to flip and Texas was going to flip, but people were thought that, okay. Um, 
And that uh, sort of disappointment slash, uh, you know, response to that uh, post post 16 really informed, I think, um, the jumping off point for, okay, this is what I want to study at least for the next two or three years. How are we going to um, sort of react to this, to this moment, right? Okay. Now, in addition to this being framed by the moment, so to speak, you are a Latino person born and raised in El Paso, Texas. Um, how, if at all, did your identity influence the topic, how you went about it, and how you sort of made sense of the findings? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a, an introspective question there, Pablo. <laughs> no, we're not often we're not used to, to sharing that aspect, I guess, of our work. Um, but uh, but I think it's only they're comfortable sharing. No, no, no. I, I certainly am. I mean, um, you know, I, I think this is important, right, to actually say where we come to our work from. Um, you know, I grew up in El Paso, and El Paso is is maybe different for some of your. So, uh, my my experience growing up there might be different for some of your listeners here, right? Because I did not grow up in a city that had a majority white population, for example, where I was very much understood, for example, as a minority in the city, right? That was just not my identity growing up. Um, you know, in fact, I didn't have, feel like I had a strong kind of valence to my, my identity in, in that sense. I didn't understand myself as a, a Latino person until I really went to college, to be honest. Um, to be fair, I grew up in the 90s, you know, and the 90s was this very kind of, I think, kind of exuberant last gasp of <laughs> the, the post-war prosperity. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's great if you think about it. But, um, you know, I, I went to college right when, you know, the Obama revolution was happening, um, you know, quote unquote. And, and, and so race started to become a little bit more legible, I think, for a lot of my colleagues. And we started to see oh, okay, there is something to being different, I guess, quote, unquote. Maybe this is just my experience of growing up. Um, I think that's different for, for folks now, right? I mean, I think, you know, young people, I talk to my students, they have a very clear understanding that they are racialized, right, in some way. Um, and so um, that's one aspect of it. Certainly that that I was reflecting on when I was kind of coming to the book. I was like, okay, how did I, how did I was, was a subject of this phenomenon that I was studying itself, right? Uh, because I, I bought into the, that 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 sort of narrative that oh okay Latino voters we're gonna we're gonna take over it's gonna be a, a brown nation and you know Republicans will never sort of win again um, and as I saw sort of some of the um, how should I put it um, you know some of the 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 parts of the narrative that that didn't line up with reality I suppose. Um, uh, or at least someone's interpretation of reality, I, I said, okay, this is something actually worth studying, right? Because we're all subjects of this thing we study, right? As communication scholars, we're all, we all live in a society as much as a cliche as that is, but but we also, you know, I, like I said, I, I'm a big fan of Disney media, but, uh, you know, I'm super critical of it too, right? I mean, we have to, we have to do both things at once, right? And hold those contradictory ideas uh, at the same time. Excellent. And then, as you started doing the research and um, writing about it and sharing it first at conferences, then in writing, um, then in the review process for the book, etc. Um, how did the, both the racialization of the Latin identity, right? Um, 
and other cultural issues related to positionality came to play, if at all. Yeah, was that yeah. part of the conversation of the sort of the reactions that you were getting first from the audiences, then from reviewers, etc.? I think my experience here might be something that that some folks have have experienced, um, and and it's it's something that's a little hard to kind of talk about. Um, in that, when I started, first started doing this work, I didn't get a lot of feedback, um, and and you know sometimes we we talk too much about the really positive moments of feedback and the really negative moments, and those are you know terrible in themselves. But I remember going to my first conference and getting you know two people in the audience, right. And, and so, you know, they came up and they were very polite and they said, oh, it was a really interesting topic. And then that was it, you know. Um, and so, so I think, you know, that was my initial experience with this. Um, I should mention that, you know, I was kind of been working on this project uh, essentially from, it was published, the book was in, in 2020. So, uh, but I really started thinking about it in probably 2013, roughly. Um, and I like to say that I always tell my students this story about how um, one of the uh, what my first publication is sorry my second publication in, in a journal um, was essentially took about like four uh, no sorry yeah four years to to get from from as it, when it was conceived in a seminar um, to the final publication of it and I, you know to explain sort of the sometimes the slowness of uh, of, of academic publishing and. Um, for example, you know, that, that piece started in a seminar, then I um, included it in my, my master's thesis, I revised it and resubmitted it for a seminar, a doctoral seminar, I worked up the courage after, um, you know, advising by my faculty mentor, um, who just said, you know, these papers are all pretty good in, in, my, in his seminar, he said, why don't you all just send it to NCRI and see what happens. And, um, and I sent it to NCA 2016, the, the NCA that happened right after the election, it was very dramatic, um, and um, and but that you know when I presented it for the first time at a kind of a quote unquote major conference, um, I didn't get a, a huge response or I didn't get much at all, and so I was kind of felting uh, felt like sort of in the dark uh, so to speak, and um, you know it really wasn't until I started actually sending things out for for publication when I started to get feedback, um, and and you know I think it's hard sometimes to read other people's feedback, especially at your early stage, because you take it very personal. Um, but what I would always, what I always do, and I still do is I read it and then I put it away for a few days and then I come back to it later and I try to take it to heart. Um, and, you know, I'm willing to, to make the changes if, if they're willing to, to work with me, right, always. And, um, and I've had good success with that, uh, thankfully. Um, but that's really, I think, where I, I I started to to really refine my work and get it to where I need to go. So if, you know, if I did have any advice, um, you know, I, I say put put your stuff out there sometimes and, and put it out there where it's going to get critical feedback um, because even um, you know faculty mentors or even um, you know uh, your, your friends, uh, your colleagues will, will be a little softer. It's, it's getting that that the first reviewer to comment uh, can be really good in that sense because. It kind of you know gets your work where it needs to be eventually, and and you can then become your own reviewer too, uh, which I'm learning right now as I'm as I'm editing this this book that you mentioned also. Um, so that's kind of kind of sort of the the moments where where it kind of uh, I guess my own sort of uh, position kind of clashed with with the academic writing process. Uh, hopefully that answers uh, what you were yeah, looking absolutely. for. Yeah, absolutely. And how about the afterlife of of the book so far? Because you know. In my experience, and books tend to have a bit more of an afterlife than articles, unless there is an article that is, you know, really mm -hmm. 
still defining, um, but books circulate more broadly and for a longer period of time. Um, what has been, um, you know, the, 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 the reaction to the book that you have experienced so far, including for people not in the academy, you know, family members. I remember when I published my first book, my father and my mother were very proud and took a picture with it and all <laughs> of that. Um, uh, so can you share with us a little bit of that aspect? Yeah, of yeah. Um, of course, uh, you know, I'm proud of it. My, my folks are, are, are super proud of it too. And, um, but, you know, in terms of an afterlife here, I think you're kind of right that these, that books can kind of emerge in moments when, when, um, when they, they need to be, uh, so to speak, and, and people come back to them and uh, versus articles kind of have an impact when they come out, unless they're these like field defining kind of pieces. And um, so when, when the book originally came out, it was in the middle of the primary season here in the United States. And so there was a lot of interest, particularly around the candidacy of, of um, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, from, from the left uh, in, in the Democratic Party, because he seemed to be doing really well among Latinx voters. And so there was some media interest in, okay, trying to explain this. And I, you know, I guess some folks saw the title and, and saw who I was and wanted, thought I could explain it to some effect. Um, what I wrote for, for the New York Times in that particular piece isn't actually really doesn't come up, is not the substance of my book, I think. So, so people kind of read the title and they assume what it's going to be. Um, and, and that's fine, of course. Uh, the other reaction I've gotten quite a few times is uh, I have to explain what Latinx means and why I use it, um, which is a whole interesting conversation in of itself. And I think, um, you know, it's something that we kind of have to do partly when we use the term and we, you know, if we use it, we need to be intentional about using it. Um, because we sometimes we have to do the work of explaining why we're using it, not just assume people know about it. Even folks that you know um, are, are in my community or in my in my family. Um, but otherwise, it's you know I think uh, I'm starting to see the the work uh, hopefully influence uh, some other work around it. I think the conversation that I'm taking a part in with the book about the construction of Latino identity, not taking it for granted um, as a sort of fixed object um, in, in in sort of US uh, culture and media, um, I'm starting to see more critical takes on that in terms of um, scholarship. So I just reviewed a paper, for example, that, that looked at that. I won't get too much into the details, um, but I'm really kind of glad to see that that conversation being shaped because I think, um, you know, uh, we had a, a moment in, at least in, in media studies about uh, Latinos in the United States, Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, First of all, where they're trying to fight for legitimacy, right? Where it was just, we need, deserve to be studied. And it was a fight back then. And there was a lot of pioneers and, and sort of uh, people who really pushed that. And, and we're all very, you know, uh, uh, indebted to their, to their hard work and their fights. Um, and so that really informed, I think, the early stages of the field. But now that we're sort of more established, um, obviously, we're still fighting for our spaces in the academy. But um, I think broadening the sort of scope of, of what we are, are studying, partly my book is taking in part of this conversation. Um, I'm really kind of excited to see where that goes um, because there's a lot certainly at stake. I mean, there's a reason why in the book I talk about, you know, all these corporations who want this market uh, of, of Latinos in the United States because it's huge. I mean, if you add up the GDP, I, this is a crazy stat. Uh, I don't know if it's still true anymore, but it probably is. If you add up the GDP of Latinos in the United States, uh, it's bigger than any country in Latin America. Um, so there's there's a lot at stake, really. I mean, for corporations, for marketers, for media companies, uh, for Disney, right, for, for the political parties, for everyone, sort of. And so I think 
paying attention to those trends as, as, a, as a field um, is, is hopefully what my book, I think, is trying to intervene in. And I'm really glad to see some folks actually starting to talk about it more critically. No, absolutely. And I mean, the last thing I read, and again, I don't know, uh, as you said, how, how uh, trustworthy it is, but was that in 2017, it accounted for 2.7 trillion um, or something along those lines uh, in the US, right? Um, so um, yeah, no, it's, it's significant. Now, there are almost 20% of Latinx, uh, Latino, Latina people in the US. And as you said, I mean, the Academy in Communication and Media Studies, for instance, in the US doesn't have 20% uh, representation. So why do you think that's the case? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I think, why do I think that's the case? I mean, you know, obviously higher education was um, historically limited to Mexican-Americans, especially, you know, here in South Texas. Um, you know, I, 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 at my institution in particular, Texas A&M International University, uh, it's, we just, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. And, you know, there's a lot of institutions that have been around much longer than that. And, and, and part of the story that we're trying to tell, right, is that people didn't, in the state of Texas, didn't think that the community needed higher education, essentially, that Laredo did not need an institution of higher ed. Um, they could go elsewhere if they wanted it. And so it really was a fight back in the back in the day, right? Whose people are still around from that fight to be to be totally fair and clear um, to to establish that. And so those things aren't just you know that's 50 years ago, right? So those 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 sort of legacies aren't just easily overcome with a generation or two. Um, you know, I remember being in, in in grad school and folks attending there were saying, "Oh yeah, my you know my uh, my dad's a professor, you know, and that's just what we do." Um, to, you know, to be totally honest, though, um, I think at the same time, it's it's not a simple question of why aren't there enough. We also have we've seen a huge increase in supply of, of, of PhD educated folks and a diminishing a sort of demand for them, at least at the levels in which, you know, maybe a previous generation may have had access to. Right. So so you and I know this. Right. There's a huge decrease of, of funding. Um, there's a huge uh, decrease in tenure line. I mean, tenure, I think, is under attack. And that's something that we as scholars post-pandemic or, or living through this pandemic, if it ever truly ends, have to be very wary about, right? These increased attacks or sort of threats to, to sort of the tenure structure. And it may need to change um, because of shifts in, in our population and labor, for example. Um, and so you have this combination, I think, where a bunch of Latinx scholars start emerging right when the uh, industry itself of academia starts to contract, right? We have, we're having the enrollment crisis, right? Where there's less people going to college now. Our, our institution is, is kind of safe from that because we're in a growing region of the country. Uh, we have a younger population here, primarily Mexican-Americans. Um, so you're gonna have probably a lot of folks hanging on to positions for a long time, teaching a population that is much different than them um, and uh, state essentially funders and organizations who are less willing to invest in sort of tenure lines. Um, and so uh, there's just kind of a sort of a bottleneck, if you will, of, of, of labor, then contract meeting this kind of contraction point, right? Okay, and on that sort of grim note, what, um, what change strategies do you think could be implemented to reverse that trend? 
right? And because this is happening at a time in which the US needs more diversity, not less diversity. Yeah. I mean, any society do at any point in history, but this particular point in history is more crucial than ever. Yeah. More diversity, more equity, more inclusion. So what could be done creatively to, to ease these restrictions? Yeah, I, I I know. I really I'm really been thinking about this because this is really the, sort of the question of our time in our field and and uh, in politics more broadly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, how do we increase you know all of these values that we have: diversity, inclusion, equity, etc. When confronted with a lot of threats to not just those values in and of themselves. I mean, literally, you have the the administration right now uh, in late 2020 saying you can't even do those trainings anymore, or your federal funding might be at risk. Um, but also just, I think, these large macro trends um, moving towards, you know, um, uh, sort of the enrollment crisis, for example, like I mentioned already. So what can we do? Um, you know, one thing that, that we're trying in our, in our institution and department is to be a little more creative about um, what our students can expect out of our program um, and, and be very versatile. Uh, of course, you know, we're subject to the same demands sort of for labor as, as everyone else is. And so... We're also cognizant of the fact that not everybody in our programs, for example, might have that academic path that was very common, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, right? Um, and so we're trying to be as versatile as we can um, so that, you know, our students can be well prepared for whatever labor market they do enter when they graduate. And it, it's certainly going to be tough for everyone. I mean, it's tough for us, those of people who have jobs right now, I, you know, for those who um, are, are searching, it's going to be very, 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 very challenging. Um, I think institutions probably need to um, uh, rethink essentially how they're structured. I mean, I think, you know, this pandemic showed that who actually does the labor in an institution, the faculty um, are, are, are critically needed and all the folks who make the university run. And, you know, it's probably been a losing battle, but there's a lot of folks who are in upper levels um, and this, this sort of question of administrative bloat um, probably needs to be re. Uh, rethought, you know, and I don't know if it's certainly if it's possible, given, you know, all the ties that are associated with federal funding and state funding. I mean, there's a reason why those administrative positions exist. So I think perhaps when we are doing our advocacy as academics, maybe perhaps we should be careful when we call for more, you know, administrative positions and not as many, you know, faculty positions, perhaps, uh, in terms of sort of our own internal uh, politics and and I know you you probably are going to ask or, or will ask about my magic wand solution. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, it's 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 you know for me it's all about state you know public funding. We need to invest in public education um, at high, of higher levels. I think that if if we really do value diversity and quality inclusion, it's a political question. It's not a it's not an administrative question. Essentially, it's a question of are we going to you know have policies and people and politicians that invest in that future because you know it's it's very curious that as, as a moment when you know black and latino people and other you know sort of uh, marginalized groups are attempting to get and move into Amer- the upper you know levels of american society and, and get educated that the funding is being decreased and pulled away right or or you know there's this disappearing kind of um public intervention so it's like you know i mean that is i think really the battlefield uh, of the next couple of years and and so if we took that magic wand from higher education to the field of communication and media studies, 
right? Um, what would you, you know, if, if you could wish for one thing that, that the field could change, right? Because the field doesn't get state funding, for instance, right? <laughs> and the field is international also. So, um, but you, you, could, you could go on the same line, I'm not preventing any possible answer, but I'm curious, um, you know, what would you wish for? <laughs> you put me on the spot here because I that was I was already pre-planning my answer to be increased uh, public uh, funding of, of higher ed. I didn't think about um, uh, for the field. You know, ironically, uh, my uh, or maybe not ironically, but interestingly enough, I think this is something we're confronting with um, with the book project I'm on right now, which is that there is a U.S. dominance in the field of, of, of communication and media studies. And I have to catch myself, you know, because I, I was raised here. I write mostly about U.S. phenomenon, um, and you know, I don't say I could predict the future of the world or anything like that. But I think we're heading probably more likely towards a less U.S. dominant, gen in general, right, um, geopolitical kind of a, a association. Um, and I mean, you know, for example, the COVID crisis showed that we can't depend on international supply lines in, in a moment's notice. They're very brittle, actually. Um, you know, I think, you know, China is becoming a huge sort of player at the geopolitical stage. And so I'd encourage, I think, the field, or if I had my magic wand, I'd say, all right, let's think uh, more broadly at how these trends are playing out, not just in our little corner of the world, the United States, or in Europe, to be totally fair to, um, to you know, or to be totally uh, clear, I guess, here, or even handed, um, and, and really turn our attention to sort of global phenomenon, but also, you know, local level phenomenon, too, that, um are, are impacted in kind of these uh, global questions. I mean, I, I just finished up a project and I'm really, really, really thrilled with it about how COVID misinformation, for example, is uh, being shared, interpreted, and understood um, by people here in my community, right? And how our local understanding of culture influences that information process. I mean, you know, I wish, I, 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 I highly encourage, I guess, sort of anyone who seeks to become a knowledge producer, right, an academic, to view the community that they that they live in, literally, uh, as a sort of fertile place to do kind of knowledge work, right, and and uncover sort of um, things that are happening in their community and be involved in it, um, because you know a lot of us sometimes end up in in places that don't have a sort of um, you know an educated class of folks who are knowledge producers, and so we can play that role, and that's something I've been trying to do here. Um, and I think that may be sort of a synthesis of that could be potentially the future. Um, so I, this is such a cliche, but if my, mag my magic wand answer now for the field is think, what is it? Think, think globally, act locally. It's super cliche. Sorry for that, everyone. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's a great wish because it has very important, uh, very important implications. Thank you very, very much, Arthur, for spending uh, the time with us. This has been a fabulous conversation. I have really enjoyed it. Um, I want to thank our listeners for staying with us to the end of this episode and invite you to the next episode of El Café Latinx, the podcast of the Center for Latinx Digital Media at Northwestern University. Thank you, Arthur, again. Cool. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you, everyone. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.